0: This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles. This is the finish line. The Stanford racing team has made its way
1: into the history books. But the most important thing for me is uh, it actually doesn't matter who comes first. It matters that we as a a community achieve it.
0: Early in a technology, uh, a thousand flowers should bloom. Welcome to Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kyrouz. Our guest today is Nico Larko, an associate professor of architecture at the University of Oregon and co-founder and co-director of the Sustainable Cities Initiative, a multidisciplinary organization that focuses on sustainability issues as they relate to the built environment. We're talking to him today about his recent research on the secondary impacts of autonomous vehicles on cities, including the effects on transportation, street design, real estate, and land use. Nico, welcome to the show.
1: Great to have be here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you and your team are doing at the University of Oregon?
1: Sure. So um, uh, we, we have an organization here uh, called the Urbanism Next at the University of Oregon, which works across a range of different disciplines, uh, You know, uh, urban design, planning, policy, architecture, law, uh, journalism, uh, looking at... Uh, how the how uh, autonomous vehicles, e-commerce, and the sharing economy are going to be uh, impacting cities, and city form, city design, and city development. So, uh, in this work, we're less interested in the technologies themselves, which I know is kind of a funny thing for me to say on this podcast, uh, which is very much interested in the technologies. Uh, but what we're really interested in is the this what we call the secondary impacts of these technologies. So, how is it that these uh, these uh, emerging technologies, be being a, a really large one are going to be affecting things like land use, uh, land valuation, um, equity concerns, uh, changes in in street design and neighborhood design, pressures on sprawl, uh, municipal finance, all these types of things. So these secondary impacts. And what we found is that uh, whereas there's a tremendous amount of research, fantastic research happening on the technologies themselves, and there's starting to be some great research as well on what we call the kind of first order effects of, um, of uh, you know, the transportation uh, sector, so how will this affect mode choice or how will it affect um, uh, um, uh, vehicle miles traveled, congestion, these types of things, there's very little that looks at these second order effects, these secondary effects, uh, as I mentioned before. And so, uh, you know, one of the benefits that we have at the University of Oregon is that we uh, um it's a fairly flat organization, and we work a tremendous amount across a lot of disciplines, which has given us a, a great base, uh, both within the university, but also then making contacts uh, context throughout the university. So we've been working uh, with the public sector, the private sector, uh, and academia across the country, putting together people who are working on these topics and trying to On the one hand, shed light on the topic, uh, making sure people are are understanding what kinds of things are happening, trying to compile and organize and um, and, uh, curate, we'll say, uh, some of the best research that's out there, uh, and trying to push a whole lot of research on our own.
0: That's terrific. Uh, And you guys have a great website. I'll put some links to your articles and and materials in our show notes so everyone can, uh, can take a look at a lot of the research you guys are doing. Great. And you're hosting a conference in March, is that right?
1: Yeah, so uh, this is uh, tremendously exciting for us. We actually hosted a um, a workshop it, last year, which is really the precursor to this, where we had people from around the country coming uh, together. Uh, we did one actually here in Portland, and then we did one as part of the Autonomous Vehicle Symposium, uh, where we had people from around the country come together and talk about what some of these secondary impacts might be. And that's grown into what we're doing this year, which is a much larger event. So this is um, March 5th through 7th here in, in Portland, Oregon. Uh, it's the Urbanism Next National Urbanism Next Conference. And it's a collaboration between uh, us, the University of Oregon, and Urbanism Next, uh, along with the American Planning Association, the American Society of Landscape Architects, the American Institute of Architects, and Urban Land Institute. So these are the professional organizations for architects, urban designers, planners, uh, landscape architects and developers. And it's the first time these organizations are coming together to talk about these topics and these secondary impacts. Uh, We're kind of in this Funny place where you know two years ago, for people outside maybe the tech industry, this all seemed a little bit of a of you know science fiction and you know this interesting kind of side thing. Uh, and now it's very quickly become uh, as a, a friend of mine from the area, Jerry Cheney likes to say, it's become science fact. Um, <laughs> and so, so all of a sudden, if people are, are waking up to oh, what what exactly is this thing, and what are these impacts? Yeah. So we're gathering people from uh, around the country. We've got a great group of people coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robin Chase. One of the founders of Zipcar, um, uh, Jeff Tumlin from Nelson Nygaard, Susan Shaheen from UC Davis, uh, just to name a few, uh, to talk about all these things, uh, the impacts of autonomous vehicles, uh, e-commerce and the sharing economy uh, on cities. uh, It should be a great event. We'd love for people to to come out to that.
0: Terrific. Uh, And that sounds great. Is there, um, who do you think might benefit from attending? It sounds like there's a a fair amount of folks, uh, from the urban planning community there. Um, is it the kind of conference that someone who's uh, more on the industry side of autonomous vehicles could benefit from?
1: Yes, absolutely. So, um, so there's definitely going to be a lot of people in the planning design development fields, uh, being part of this. We have a lot of people coming from, a um, uh, the private sector or the public sector as well. So people who are in government and, and trying to figure out what to do with these pieces. Um, and the, the, I think there's a, there's a really important uh, place and role for people who are on the technology side and on the, on the uh, kind of OEM side, which is that, you know, our, our, as the more that we look at this and the more that we talk to people and the more that we see the range of impacts that are, that are going to be happening, um, the more that we, uh, think that, you know it could be that the the largest barriers for the rollout of some of these technologies aren't actually the tech, the state of the technology itself, but um, the the environment in which uh, they start um, they start being uh, introduced and the reaction to those things. So as we look at some of these impacts, and we we'll, hope we'll talk a little bit more about this later in this sh- in this uh, podcast. But as we think about some of the impacts this might have on things like municipal budgets, or land values or, uh, you know, organizations of design uh, or organization of streets and neighborhoods, um, there will be, you know, some heavy issues that, that cities need to deal with, that, you know, people general, people on the street need to be dealing with. Um, and the repercussions might not be, uh, if it's not done well, might not be all that positive. And so if the, I, my sense is if the OEMs want to make sure that, uh, you know, their being able to introduce the, these these products into an environment that it's going to be both welcoming and you know uh, have positive effects that will continue to have a, a, a positive view of the industry and of the of the technology, it's really important for them to get ahead of of um, these kinds of questions, to be thinking about them, uh, and to be uh, uh, to be proactively uh, trying to plan for how to make sure that the the impacts are 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 positive, that they they do good things for communities. Some of the people that we have coming uh, to the conference, in fact, some of the sponsors of the conference, uh, include things like uh, Uber and Lyft, uh, um, uh, Ford, Chariot, uh, Via, uh, you know, are all uh, going to be part of the conference. Um, and you know, we had a great conversation with people at Ford just recently who are absolutely, I mean, of, of all the companies we've spoken to, I think Ford is uh, slightly ahead in this. Of really thinking through some of these secondary impacts and understanding that they are that these environments are going to be coming into the reactions to them, uh, the way that that uh, uh, municipalities and citizens, firms, the whole piece, kind of uh, um, deal with the, the the secondary impacts will be critical to the rollout.
0: Well, that it sounds like a great opportunity for uh, lots of dialogue at your conference. So, uh, looking forward to that. So sounds like great, it'll be great. great. So let's, uh, let's dive into some of these secondary impacts. I was thinking maybe we could uh, address some of them <laughs> kind of in the the order in which they're going to start impacting cities. I think some of the impacts you mentioned are more uh, short-term, things we might expect to see right away, and others might be things that play out over 10 years or so, Um What are some of the more immediate impacts that you think cities will start to see once autonomous vehicles are introduced and and maybe we can take as an assumption that AVs are introduced in autonomous taxi services that are sort of very cheap compared to current TNC or taxi prices and let's assume there's sort of a decent amount of coverage in, in major cities?
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I'll start by saying, you know, something that we say a whole bunch, uh, which is um, that uh, you know the the impacts of, of AVs. We already have uh, AVs on the uh, the model of AVs working right now, and that is the TNCs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we always say TNCs are AVs, just that they happen to have drivers, mm-hmm. um, because the way that we use them, the model of how we use them, the way that they're going to be affecting. Uh, um, the way they move we move around uh, and um, and you know kind of the, the secondary effects are already uh, in place so you know the, the futures arrived I like to tell people who who are still uh, a little bit um, weary of like will AVs really happen I said you know it, it, it doesn't matter exactly when they arrived we've already, we're already in this new reality so I mean that's the whole move obviously to to uh, mobility as a service but with TNCs, you know, we're already seeing some of these impacts, uh, and and they will only get exasperated as we continue to move towards TNCs, and will only get exasperated even more uh, when um, when AVs arrive. Uh, so, you know, one of the biggest ones is uh, this questions uh, a question of parking and parking mm-hmm. use, and this this just has uh, for for people who are not in the fields of like planning and design, urban design, understanding cities. Parking is probably the largest thing that we deal with. Uh, you know, it, it, there's a there's a, a old saying in architecture that form follows function, and I've always corrected it and said, oh no no no, F- form follows parking. Everything, <laughs> everything works around parking. And if you think about it, you know, like the organization of our cities, you know, definitely streets have a whole lot to do. Uh, you know, kind of the the, the to, for how we're organized, but parking has just been a tremendous uh, um, uh, driver. Of no pun intended there, of how cities organized. So you know the amount of space that it takes up, the way it spreads uh, uses apart, the, the fact that it's not exactly all that friendly uh, um, to to uh, oftentimes to uh, other modes, um, uh, the fact that it's a huge uh, um, uh, burden we'll say on the development side of things. Right. So so no developer wants to build a whole lot of parking or no more parking than they absolutely need because it's uh, things that you're building that end up not uh, generating revenue, oftentimes, um, and uh, you know, you can't put other, it, it, takes some space that you would like to put other things into. And so, this idea that we're already seeing with TNCs, uh, you know, reductions of, of uh, parking utilization obviously, we're seeing it in airports, we're seeing it in large venue and we're starting to see it in uh, just general, you know, in, in urban and more suburban areas is this uh, a reduction in, in parking utilization. And when we start getting to that reduction, like huge, huge things start changing, you know, all of a sudden. Uh, we could be developing uh, denser, uh, much easier. So, I think the, the largest single land use by area in any city, according to Donald Shoup, who's the you know, granddaddy of all things parking, um, is is a uh, parking. It's a, it's the largest single uh, land use on, on the surface of of, uh, of most cities. And so, when all of a sudden that changes, you know, you can have areas that you can start building denser, uh, closer to cities, right? So think about what that does for the affordability of housing, fantastic things. Uh, think about what it does for the opportunity to create kind of buzz and, and, and density, fantastic things. Um, you know, also, you, know, you, you end up having huge opportunities for redevelopment in even suburban areas. So you take a, a typical suburban strip mall, you know, 40%, 50% of the land area is actually parking. Right. And so if you, even if we say like, you know, parking is going to be reduced by half and, and, you know, there's studies that show that it's going to be going down, you know, 10, 15% of what we've got right now, especially if we go to the model that you talked about where we've got fleets. Um, that's a huge amount of land that can be redeveloped. So you're going to be seeing a lot of consolidation, uh, you know, in suburban areas. And, you know, if we have 10 strip malls in our town, you know, maybe we'll end up having like four uh, as, as things move, Together, you no longer need to have large office parks out in the middle of nowhere, right? Get rid of all that parking, and all of a sudden, why would this thing be in the middle of nowhere? Why not putting it places where there can be amenities nearby? Um, so huge opportunities with that. Um, and as I mentioned, one of the one of the impacts we'll see as well is this uh, huge uh, uh, increase in the fe- feasibility of projects, of development projects. Um, parking is a, a, oftentimes a burden to development projects. And so if you don't have to build that stuff and you can take that space and put more units on there and more development on there, all of a sudden there's, there's these huge opportunities.
0: What parking do you think will still be needed? Let, let's start with parking, uh, sort of in a downtown location. I, you mentioned that there's, you know, developers have to have all these parking lots and garages and that some of that would go away, um, you know, assuming that the AV is dropping you off at work, what parking will still be needed? Where does the car go after it drops you off? And, you know, even if it's a, a, a TNC or autonomous taxi service, presumably they're being stored somewhere. And yes. you have to wait around for the next passenger or find the next ride. So, yeah. Well, what, how do you see that playing out downtown? So,
1: so yeah, so, there, so there's going to be, my sense is, three things. One, there's going to be some parking that kind of looks the way it looks today, because there might be some people who still have you know their own cars, and there might be some people who still want to have that piece there. Um, it's, it still won't look exactly like today, because there's going to be, you know, it, uh, the, the car, let's say, dropped me off this morning at my office, and there's no need for the car to park right next to the office. It could go a little further away, right and find a, a lot that's that's cheaper and, and, and easier uh, and just you know leave the car there and i will call it to come and pick me up when I'm going. So th- there will be some of that. Uh, there will be kind of these staging areas, so you know uh, dealing kind of like with a, with a slack in demand of uh, cars kind of waiting for um, for the next ride. Uh, it's kind of funny, right? Because right now, you know, I, I, I take uh, Lyft and Uber a whole lot, and, and um, I always ask the drivers, like, you know, what do what do you do when you're when you don't have a ride? Yeah. And they're always kind of repositioning, trying to find a specific place. And I say, do you ever like go there and just stop? And, and often they don't. They kind of just keep driving around. Which is uh, my sense is that when this goes to you know a real kind of automated fleets, there will be some algorithms that say. Just relocate the cars in these key locations and just let them stop so that mm-hmm. they, they they can stay somewhere. So we'll need those kinds of staging areas. And then there's going to be this really interesting new typology, which we've never had before, which is fleet storage. Right. So what happens where, you know, a place where the, the, the car can get, uh, you know, recharged. I have, I have a strong feeling these things are going to be going electric. There seems to be a lot of points in that mm-hmm. direction uh, that they can get uh, cleaned up. Uh, you know that they can be stored for you know really slack moments, extreme slack moments in in, uh, in demand. And where are these fleet storage areas going to be? Well, they're not going to be downtown, right next to you know your office building, and they're not going to be in high you know rent areas. What they're going to be is in lower rent areas, probably with you know a really important piece high access to um, to utilities, uh, so that we can get all the charging that needs to be happening done, and you know close to some large piece of infrastructure and, you know, arterials or freeways or, you know, major roads that they can Mm. get in and out of easily. Uh, so these are, these are this new and my sense is they could be quite large. Uh, you know, uh, you know, my sense is something like, uh, Uber or Lyft are going to have some of these, uh, um, larger type, uh, uh, storage facilities, uh, and kind of do all of their maintenance and and charging in that one place. Right.
0: Do you think that there's, um, an avenue for using existing downtown parking structures for pickup and drop-off. I know one of the big concerns, uh, even with the TNCs and and certainly with the move to AVs, is uh, how are we going to get sort of enough curb space, enough places, uh, without disrupting the flow of traffic, for cars to pick up and drop off, uh passengers i know at sfo that recently they were opening up some of their short-term parking facilities as uh kind of drop off and pickup zones and encouraging people to do that do you think that that might work from a, a street design and and traffic design perspective
1: um yes uh, so so I, I think you're absolutely right like this the the curb management how we find our car get into our car i think is going to be a huge issue i was i always like the visual of uh, if any of, of the people listening have ever been to a suburban um school at like uh, pickup <laughs> yeah. time right and there's yeah. uh, this yeah. massive backup of cars yeah. uh you know waiting to pick up their kids now imagine that's happening right that's the end of our work day and we're all go down but now imagine that your kids don't know what the car looks like Right. I mean, that that is the kind of chaos that that could ensue. Um, so the there's the figuring out how to manage that, I think, will be a really important uh, um, uh, piece. And both for I think there's two opportunities here. On the one hand, uh, it, it will be a source of revenue generation for cities, especially if we end up going electric. We're going to have to be finding new kind of uh, forms of revenue for all sorts of infrastructure. Um, and managing the crib will be one of, those, one of those moments. The beautiful thing is that it can be a revenue generating moment, but it can also be a behavior uh, kind of modifying moment. So we can figure out where is it that we want to have the drop off happen. If you were to go, you know, two blocks off the arterial, maybe there's a, a lesser charge to get people to spread out and, and not create congestion in these you know, kind of critical moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's huge opportunities for that. In terms of using uh, existing parking lots, absolutely. So those 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 kinds of things can happen. You know, you can kind of see. If you, I always picture um, kind of these bus depots, you know, where everyone's going to to get on and off in of mm-hmm. the station. They can, these fingers of, of lanes, mm-hmm. something like that, happening with uh, with you know TNCs, AV TNCs coming in. Um, I think that's absolutely happening. The parking lots, or sorry, parking structures themselves. I find less. Um, less possible uh mostly because once you get into that kind of a, a uh, might happen in the transition period but when we start thinking about fleet real fleet storage uh right and like these cars are going to come in and, and drop people off and like get maintained and stuff the parking lots are just not the right shape uh for these things and not, don't have the right kind of um uh organization for them um so I think I think that one will be uh, harder uh, harder to, to have happen. But I think there's a huge opportunity for you know uh, all sorts of designers to start thinking about what those inter- interfaces might look like uh, and how to um, how to incentivize uh, types of behavior that are going to be most efficient uh, and, and work best with our cities.
0: Sticking with the, with parking, another place that people park today is at venues like ballparks, you know, you mentioned shopping malls, but there's also things like concert halls and and restaurants and other other destinations. If people are getting dropped off there, kind of how how do you think that space usage is going to change? Is it going to change where we locate these things?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so absolutely. I mean, th- this is one of the beautiful pieces of the of uh, this new technology coming in, as I mentioned, you know, with parking. Uh, All of a sudden, you know, there's tons of places that, you know, you would never think of trying to put some large capacity venue, uh, even though you would love for that venue to spill out into, you know, all sorts of like street life and and, and buzz. But just because of the parking demand, it makes it really hard. Well, all of a sudden those things become possible. Uh, you do end up running into, as you're saying, this problem of, well, what do we do with pickup and drop-off that can get really, really squirrely? Mm-hmm. We're already seeing, I've heard from a number of consultants, uh, transportation consultants from around the country, that we're already seeing um, reductions in the number of, uh, the amount of parking that's being used in these types of venues. Uh, uh, oftentimes people are very excited to be able to drink uh, and, you know, <laughs> take, take their lift home as opposed to having to, to put their car in there. Um, and so we're seeing that drop off uh, absolutely happening, uh, and then the 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 question of how people are picked up and 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 um, uh, and uh, dropped off to these locations. Uh, there's a lot of people who are piloting uh, different ways of doing it. So right now, I know Uber in D.C. has a, a pilot uh, trying to figure out, you know, how many different. Uh, I think there's a pilot that's either happening or about to happen in Austin as well, where they're looking at. You know, how do I incentivize a couple different pickup and drop-off points, and maybe each one has a slight charge to it, to get people to walk the two or three blocks, uh, uh, you know, outside of this main area, so that they, you know, individuals are self-dispersing into uh, a way that's going to make it much easier for the pickup and drop-off to happen. And I think those those types of pilots are really important right now.
0: Right. I mean, it, it, to your point, you know, <laughs> TNCs are are really in some ways acting as a a test for uh, how all of this is going to work when the vehicles are automated. And so it's already being tested. What about parking where people live? I mean, either, you know, a city like San Francisco has a lot of residential neighborhoods with single family homes and driveways and garages. There's also lots of condo or apartment buildings. Um, You know, I, I understand that the, maybe the rules will be different going forward for, how much parking a developer needs to include in a new building. But, you know, a city like San Francisco is pretty pretty built up. And how would it, it affect existing uh, parking for residential areas?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm going to take that question to two parts. So one of them is the question of uh, uh, San Francisco, the specific kind of model, or cities that are really built up and dense and, and already have, you know, San Francisco has parking maximums right now, a lot of build parking in certain areas. Uh, and the second part is this question of how it might affect residential uh, kind of applications uh, or, um, or uh, locations. So in terms of uh, cities that are built up, I think, for instance, you know, San Francisco, as we get AVs uh, happening in the cities, the parking effects are not going to be that strong because they already have like huge limitations on parking in large kind of uh, um uh, leaning in and support from transit to make the the whole kind of mobility puzzle work. Uh, you know, you look at places like New York City. Similarly, you know, the the, the amount of um, the the disincentives for, for driving that already exist, you know, will will make the the, the shift of, of all of a sudden not needing parking will not be that different than the typologies. You get to cities like you know uh, Portland uh, and um, you know, parts of Seattle, that's that starts to be there's going to be more effect. You see more parking in these areas. Uh, But then you get into cities like, you know, uh, Dallas or Atlanta and the, the, the equation completely changes. I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of surface parking that's happening uh, throughout the city. Um, And so these places are going to be extremely uh, affected by that. Um, So, so it's going to, it's going to play itself out differently in different types of cities, different geographies and different, you know, we always like to think of, you know, in urban, urban areas, suburban areas, small towns, and rural as the four geographies that really need to be paying attention to. Uh, in terms of uh, the 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 question with residential, um, you know, one of the big questions we have is will people own their own cars, uh, and if if they still own their own cars, um, they might have a place that they want to have it at their house. Uh, My sense is that we're going to be getting this whole mix of different uh, models where some people have it in their own house, some people own their own car, but you know, it goes down to one of these charging uh, uh, fleet storage areas to get maintained and and, uh, uh, cleaned up and uh, and charged. And then they'll come back to the house uh, when you need them. Um, It could be that we have like, you know, more groups of people uh, kind of plugging into these things. So if it's, there's no certainty that we're going to need cars in uh, at, at our homes, right, or even if we have our own private cars, that we will need them at our homes. Um, and so, you know, that would change a whole lot of things. So, uh, you know, think about the, the, the prototypic uh, archetypal, uh, you know, way that we've developed in this country with single-family homes and, you know, the, the garage, the two, three, four-car garage. Now, if you go, in, you know, the snout houses where have the garage up in front of the entire house so you actually can't even see the front door Models of that in, in, in Arizona, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden this completely changes the equation. Uh, the 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 kind of reliance that we've had, or the, the the influence the car or the automobiles had in design, uh, will dramatically change. And so that you know, great great things, right? So we can actually put front doors directly back onto streets. We can have you know uh, porches. We can have this great interaction between the street um, uh, and the and the house and units, which. Uh, would be would be fantastic. You also think about things, you know, in not so much in denser cities, but there's an enormous typology around the country of suburban multifamily housing. You know, it's like nine million units, 10 million units in the country uh, is suburban multifamily housing. Uh, which are typically these buildings that are just, you know, in this sea of parking, you know, just endless parking lanes that go around and around. Uh, we won't, won't need those types of things anymore, right? Again, those typologies can now shift the The amount that it, it's hard to overemphasize how much parking has dominated the way that we uh, think about the built environment. So it'll really open up a lot of opportunities.
0: And, you know, are we going to see the conversion of garages in, uh, into living space i know like in silicon valley there's a lot of these ranch homes that are not very big but are quite expensive given the value of land in that area and some people already have you know converted the garage into living space and and just sort of taken it out given that it doesn't snow here and people (laughs) don't need the some place to put their car inside um but do you think that's a a trend that we'll see
1: absolutely absolutely i mean um I, I don't think there's too many homeowners or even just uh, renters you know that that would not like more space for something else uh and so you know if if uh, if you're in the design field thinking about garage conversions will be a <laughs> cottage, cottage industry coming up uh and not only the, you know the not, not only the garage but you know the whole driveway and the whole like the amount of space all that takes up i think there's going to be a huge shift to those to those to those things absolutely right
0: So let's go back and talk a little bit about street design. You know, we touched a little bit about issues around the curb, and there's been a lot of discussion about how cities might regulate the curb and uh, some complaints from cyclists that people pulling over to the curb using TNCs are causing problems there. Uh, you know, I, I took a look at NACTO's uh, blueprint that they came yeah. out with for some ideas about how streets might be designed differently when we have autonomous vehicles, and I'm just wondering um, how you think we could cities could use street design to address both kind of traffic flow and uh, apportioning different parts of the street for different modes of travel and uh how you think cities might start to think about those things
1: so that's a great question um and i'll say the the very first question that cities need to ask themselves and and we talk to cities all over the country about this that um the question isn't how do i accommodate avs into my city uh because uh you know cities cities are not should not be in the business of i just need to accommodate avs cities should be in the business of how do i make this community what my community wants it to be Uh, how do i like you know what are my community's values? What is it that how do people want to live? What kind of quality of life? How do we leverage this fantastic, interesting uh, and love it or not, it's coming new technology um, uh, to to help with those things. And so, um, you know, there's one of the biggest issues. So, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of work in this country of, um, trying to create, you know, more biking, walking, uh, uh in, in the country, you know, there, we have an, a, an obesity epidemic in the country and there's no doubt that, you know, the amount that we are tied to our cars and the, the amount that we have sedentary lifestyles is a big uh, problem with that. And so trying, trying to create, uh, uh, the, the design of cities that helps foster this type of. Uh, you know, walking, biking is really important. One of the largest limitations in creating, um, biking, walking, (coughs) excuse me, uh, biking, walking, uh, kind of great places, uh, is the amount of available right of way. Like how much of the street can we actually use for these things? Well, there's there's a possibility that with AVs all of a sudden, you know, our lanes are going to get narrower, potentially we'll need less of them and just depend on efficiency. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Um, and so, and we won't need on street parking, for instance. Uh, and so, all of a sudden, like the the right of way that becomes, there's a whole lot of it that become comes up for grabs. And the question for cities is, well, what are you going to do with that space? Uh, and one of the important things is, well, how do you prioritize what you want to do? So, you know, Seattle and Portland have uh, both taken policies, uh, adopted policies that say, you know, the the priorities on, in our city is going to be pedestrians in this order: pedestrians, cyclists transit freight shared autonomous vehicles uh individual use autonomous vehicles and then not allowed you know would be something like zero uh, occupancy vehicles or you know the extremely discouraged would be zero occupancy vehicles and so by having policies like that what they're saying is okay and when this available right-of-way comes up for grabs this is how we are going to organize this this space to help uh, with these community goals now there's going to be pressures in all directions, though, because one of the big issues that we've seen from studies of, uh, you know, what's going to happen, as you're already seeing it with TNCs, and you're going to see it even more when AVs arise, is a huge increase in um, the amount that we consume transportation, right? When transportation gets easier and cheaper, we tend to consume more of it. That's been historically true, and we've no reason to believe that this is going to be any different. Um, and so as you uh, consume more transportation, what that means is more vehicle miles traveled, and more, more, um, more congestion uh, in cities, uh, and so there's going to be pressure for even though I need a thinner lane eventually once we you know, move all the way over to one one type of a, a vehicle, um, that. There's going to be pressure to say, well, maybe I still want to add an extra lane uh, because now we have more cars on the street and more pressure to be moving around, and that I think will be a, a large fight. There's also this this uh, question of um, you know the the interaction with modes. Uh, I've seen too many uh, you know uh, fantastical um, kind of uh, models uh, that engineers have put together of you know, cars zipping at each other and, you know, net speeds through intersections and just missing each other. (laughs) And and I always think, you know, that's great, but that city has no people. Um, You know, as soon as we have things like we have pedestrians and crosswalks and a cyclist, then that model doesn't, it doesn't even make sense. Uh, You know, there's going to be other, other pressure in cities. And, you know, I would say, those are kind of important things The people are kind of important parts of cities. So I hope that, I hope we don't all of a sudden, you know, just erase them from the equation. Um, but figuring out how those things all come together will be really, really important. You also have questions of things like, um, what happens, you know, uh, as AVs have algorithms that don't allow them to run over people. Thank goodness. Uh, what happens when all of a sudden, you know, a couple of people decide they all want to walk in the street, and do we do do we have like a critical mass ride of, you know, instead of it being a thousand cyclists, it's just two that are that are completely shutting down the city. Uh, and how do how do we deal with those types of things?
0: Right. What do you think about, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, bike lanes and increasing use of of the right of way for things like cycling and cities perhaps prioritizing that. Um, is there another place to put the bike lane besides, you know, between the place where cars and buses are driving and the sidewalk? Like, should there be a, a, a raised up sidewalk in the center, you know, like a center lane for bicycles, maybe that's up on a curb um, or some other place? place um it it seems like a a really hard thing to do both i know you start seeing kind of physical barriers of for bike lanes um little trees and and things like that but um has any thought been given to sort of how to redesign streets if you wanted to prioritize uh bike use
1: yes so um it's difficult. So one of the issues, so there are some models where, uh, you know, the bike lanes in the middle of the street, you need to make sure it's protected, right? Obviously, I guess that'll be easier with AVs because they won't go careening uh, out into the, that area. Uh, but there, there, there are models of that. The difficulty is those, all those cyclists need to become pedestrians at some point, right? So they're going to have to have, they're going to have to get to the curb. Uh, to, at, to wherever it is that they're going, or they're going to have to turn. And, and um, when they're in the middle of the lane, or in the middle of the street, it makes it much, much more difficult for that. Um, there are options. So, for instance, you know this idea of cycle tracks. So if you have the pedestrian kind of around the sidewalk, and then you have an area, you see this all over in, in Copenhagen and Amsterdam. Uh, we've got a few of them here in Portland. Um, this space where the bikes can go between the sidewalk and the um Uh, and the street Mm -hmm. Uh, so you could have you know a sidewalk a a bike lane a little bit more like a buffer a little bit of a sidewalk uh, and which is large enough for people who are getting in and out of uh, cars or transit to be accessing Uh, then all of a sudden you know they can get out they can get off the bus and they're standing there in like a two-foot strip look to both sides and then cross the cycle track whenever they there's a there's a space for that. So those types of things are, are absolutely possible and, you know, fantastic uh, opportunities. And, and there's been there's already been designs. In fact, I was just in New York a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, there's a whole bunch of pilot projects that are looking at exactly doing that, you know, pulling out uh, um, where, the, where this kind of buffer zone for, for interaction with the street that doesn't have to be right where the, like the bikes are going.
0: Right. It, it, it just strikes me that, you know, if curb space is becoming more valuable, should we create more curb space?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. That'd be good. And the other, the other thing to think about is, uh, and this may be getting too in the weeds with, uh, with, um, uh, uh, with the, the topics that the, the podcast is interested in, but you also have to think about it as a network. Not every street has to do everything. Right. Not every street has to have, you know, uh, be absolutely fantastic for cyclists. Not every street has to be the place where we all get dropped off. Um, You know, so we can think about, you know, there might be, you know, a street off of the main street or a street um, or certain parts of streets or certain streets where we prioritize one kind of mode over another.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really interesting approach. I know, like in downtown San Francisco, you have one way streets, right? Yeah. You know, they alternate. And so people know, all right, if I need to go that direction, I need to go over a couple blocks to go (laughs) in in that direction. And you could sort of see that kind of uh, divvying up. As well, absolutely. Um, you mentioned uh, zero-occupant vehicles, and when you were thinking about different things that ought to be prioritized, and and you also mentioned kind of the increase in VMT that um, people think will uh, be likely to happen when uh, mobility is available for everyone at a, a pretty cheap cost. Um, I'm a little confused about why there's so much concern. Uh, or focus on the the people in the vehicle for for this reason it seems like an imperfect proxy for something else maybe it's the necessity of the trip in other words whether you get in your car and you drive to CVS and pick up some items and drive back or whether your automated vehicle went by itself and picked up those items and came back it's it's the same number of traffic trips right
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, so yes, absolutely. But, uh, you know, there's the other side of it, which is, um, uh, let's just say, you know, I was going to come do this podcast and I came in and, uh, all of a sudden said, um, uh, you know, I'll just let the, I don't want to pay for parking. I'm just going to let the car circle for a while. And I come in and do this podcast. And, and so we have all of a sudden congestion for no good cause. Right. So there's not that's not really a trip. It's just sitting out there uh, on the streets and clogging the streets. The other thing is that – sorry, go ahead. Yeah,
0: no, I, I, I hear that point, and isn't that really just vehicle miles traveled where it's like, all right, if you're going to run around and take up street space. I mean, in other words, if, if there was a person in the car, you know, if your wife was in the car and, and you said, all right, you go drive around for a while while I do a task and then come back and get me it wouldn't make the t- the driving around any less objectionable just because there was a person in the car. Oh, absolutely.
1: Right? Absolutely. So, so, I mean, I guess you're right somewhat in that having a person in the car is a, is somewhat of a burden. Uh, and we're just leaning a little bit on the fact that people don't just want to drive around for no reason. And therefore, you know, they're going to make decisions to, to avoid that. But the other thing, I mean, a lot of the questions, so not only zero occupancy, but, but lower occupancy vehicles, uh, if we let, If we continue down the path that we're at, right, which, you know, with kind of these uh, uh, the the auto dominated kind of areas um, and you all of a sudden add more congestion and more trips and more VMT, well, our infrastructure can't handle those things. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so part of the idea of having this like thinking about occupancy is that it is unbelievably inefficient the way that our transportation system works. right I mean, it's you know, it is it's it's almost incredible when you step back from it. 95% 95% of the time, our cars sit idle, right? They're parked. Of the time that we use them, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, we only use 20% of the capacity, right? One out of the five seats in a car. So, so the, the, the inefficiency in the system is just staggering. And so when we think about, you know, with the growth that we're seeing in cities, with the growth that we're the growth in VMT and congestion that we'd be seeing, um, wouldn't and all of a sudden with this new ability to have, uh, you know, this app based kind of figuring out where we're all going uh, and um, and, uh, uh, you know, cars that are much more flexible and dynamic. um, Wouldn't it make more sense to try to get take care of that ridiculous inefficiency that is extremely expensive for us, both in infrastructure and in time costs? Uh, and just make everything more efficient. Uh, so what if we started to say, you know, that, that um, if we could just get two people per each car, right? I mean, you would almost half the number of cars, the number of trips that we see out there. Um, if we could, uh, you know, one of the things that we think would be really interesting is to look at something we call a geometry tax. So is it possible that we think of uh, how much space you're taking up per person, and that there's a charge for that? So if there's only one person in an enormous car or only one person in an enormous bus. Okay. That is not – that's not an efficient use of uh, of our infrastructure, of, you know, this thing that's on the street, you know, the streets, which are a limited resource. Uh, and so what if instead we said, okay, well, we, you know, we're going to charge you for how much space you take up. Uh, and, you know, if there's many people on that trip, uh, that's going to reduce the overall cost. Um, but that but that way we're, we're trying to work efficiencies into the system, which, you know, already exists – uh, in in all sorts of other systems that we've got, where you know there's limited capacity,
0: right? I I think what you're saying really is, you know, in addition to the changes to street design, that we can use this type of uh, a fee or a tax, whether it's VMT or geometry,
1: um, mm-hmm.
0: to try to incentivize um, behavior that that would help everyone.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and 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 to to go to the point that you know. The, a lot of the projections that we're seeing, and we're again, we're already seeing this with um, <clears throat> with TNCs. The amount of VMT that's being created by TNCs uh, is is staggering. Right, a lot of this, these um, presentations that just happened at the the Transportation Research Board TRB conference in in DC was just showing, you know, like thirty percent increase in VMT for TNCs compared to other and and you know people taking more trips than they would otherwise. And so this isn't just a well, you know, we're kind of growing, and the you know things are going to get a little bit worse. This could be dramatically worse, right? Like huge strains on systems that are already really strained. So we, you, you can think of these new uh, uh, technologies actually giving us opportunities to deal with some of the problems that we've we've not we've not dealt with well in the past.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, you know, I kind of I am of two minds about some of the the studies and things about TNCs and traffic in the sense that you know I think you're right obviously for a long time in this country we've tried to encourage carpooling and you know getting more people into per vehicle and using transit and all of those things because of our our traffic headaches on the other hand you know autonomous vehicles present this opportunity to create mobility for everyone and it is true that as soon as you open up mobility by making it cheaper, by making it available to the elderly, to the young, to the disabled, uh, you know, so many different uh, people who have not been able to have the convenience of a car for so long, uh, it, it does open it up to additional trips. Um, and frankly, even the economic uh, reality of, People are going out more. You talk to young mm-hmm. people in San Francisco, and they're like, "We can go out to dinner in the Mission on a Friday night." And you know, some of those TNC trips are not all in the commute hour.
1: Uh-huh. You know, when you
0: look at when you look at some of these uh, details, you know, Friday is the most popular day for TNC trips. Well, everybody knows the commute is really light on Fridays. They call it Friday Light. You know, so you know those are evening trips. And Uh, so communities can benefit. I mean, it seems like, um, should we also be measuring the economic good that comes from greater mobility?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I mean, you, you see it a ton, especially like for instance, with elderly people. Um, and if we can drop the price of trips, you know, like, you know, the huge opportunities for much better mobility, uh, for people who are economically disadvantaged, you know, great. But what you, what you worry about is this kind of tragedy of the commons, right? So, um, if, you know, all of a sudden, you know, if we have a field that all of a sudden we can all use and we all decide at the same time, oh, great, I'm going to get that one extra cow. Right. And everyone goes and like feeds at the same time. Well, the thing's destroyed. Right. Uh, and that's that's the concern with, uh, with this thing. We've always thought of the streets as a public good uh, that we can all share and good and everything. Well, the truth is it's got limited, uh, limited capacity. And so we need to start, especially with the, you know, the, the steep rise that we might be seeing, we need to start figuring out ways uh, to, to deal with that. And this new technology, right, uh, everything from the AV to all the app-based you know, um, uh, pieces that go with it, allow us a huge uh, um, uh, opportunity that hasn't existed before, right? You know, the way that we can, uh, we can uh, collect and analyze data about trips is something that's never happened before. And so we could be much more efficient about, you know, chances are uh, in the San Francisco area, I'm going to guess on any given morning, there's a couple people, I'm going to guess more than a couple people they are going more or less in the same direction, uh, uh, you know, and not too far from each other, Right. You know, that's impossible for us to guess right now. That's impossible for us to guess and for us to coordinate. But when we all of a sudden have, you know, big data, lots of uh, uh, information about how people are moving around, and lots of, you know, through apps like real-time knowledge of what people want, there's opportunities to, like, take advantage of that. And that is, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, great for the efficiency of the system, uh, reducing congestion, reducing... um, uh, uh, you know, kind of delay, reducing headache, uh, and also making it tons cheaper. So, you know, if we want to increase mobility for all, oh, what better way to do it than that?
0: Yeah, it seems like, you know, the popularity of things like UberPool, LiftLine, you know, is again kind of leading the way and showing models for ways to get more people into vehicles. And then, you know, you kind of step it up and you see uh, microtransit uh, vans mm-hmm. and shuttles like Chariot. Um you know, Do you think that um, that's the direction we're going, in other words, that, that cars need to be more like buses and buses need to be more like cars uh, in the sense of sort of a, a coalescing on uh, smaller, more on-demand uh, ways of getting around that are convenient like cars, but maybe have more people in them, uh, more like a shuttle?
1: Yes. Yeah. So, so it's kind of funny because I, 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 I love to say like to make cars more like buses. Cause that just seems like a not winning situation. <laughs> um, um, but I mean, it's, it's, it's a different thing. So, you know, when, when I, uh, get into a, a lift line or an Uber pool, um, you know, th- the experience is almost exactly the same as me getting into a taxi. Right. I mean, like I get in, I, you know, give a brief nod to the people next to me, and then, you know, most everyone's on their phones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not like we're degrading the experience, right? Uh, or And I didn't have to wait a tremendous amount of time for that. And if it takes me two blocks out of my way, you know, most people don't even look up from their phones to realize that that's happening. So, I mean, the, the, it's a really different model than, you know, the way we think about uh, buses right now or transit right now where we have, it's got a set schedule and i have to wait for the thing and I, I have to modify my schedule tremendously to to work with those things i mean this is a, a much more kind of you know user-friendly kind of experience um that i think could be could be could be really positive positive. Uh, and you know the the studies that come out of new york for with bruce schaller's work uh and i heard it you know two weeks ago from uh people at uber themselves That the largest amount of uh, kind of uptake of Uber pool is in areas not in downtown Manhattan, but in areas outside of Manhattan, right? In places in the suburbs, strangely enough, Mm -hmm. uh, and places that are most price sensitive. And this is absolutely a, a much better economic model, right? I mean, you ask you ask any of the TNCs, would you rather have one person in your in your vehicle, or would you rather be like rather have like three or four people each paying you even a reduced fare, but each paying you a fare? Oh, everyone wants three or four. That's a much more efficient, like m- a much better business model. And, and so, I, th- I th- my sense is that you know price will drive us. Its price sensitivity seems to be uh, pretty powerful. Uh, for a lot of people, and, you know, not for everyone, not for everyone, uh, but it does seem pretty powerful. And then the other thing you have to think about is uh, we have to stop thinking about you and me. Uh, I've never seen you before, so I don't know how old you are, but uh, you know, I'm in my 40s. Um, uh, but you know, and are kind of comparing what we have right now to that future, as opposed to you know my seven-year-old who one day you know is going to start using Lyft and Uber. Uh, and Via and Chariot will come out here. Um, and this just becomes w- one other way of getting around. And it's not this huge like change of the way that they live. It is the way that they live.
0: Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. And, you know, it, as you're pointing out, you know, some of these benefits, um, do you think that uh, public transit then will need to to follow some of the lead of things like a, an Uber pool or Lyft line or Chariot and and that, you know, in addition to, uh, you know, our kids sort of being used to this this on-demand mode of travel, will that be the way they experience public transit as well?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think transit agencies are, if they're not paying attention, they're done. Uh, I mean, it is a huge moment of transition. And, you know, I love some of the work that's happening in Los Angeles right now, L.A. Metro, where they're piloting different ways of working with TNC. So, you know, mm-hmm. contracting out for the services or using like actually them delivering the services themselves uh, versus just letting it happen uh, uh, alongside. So there's three different models. Uh, but this, Transportation agencies are going to have to completely shift the way that they work. I'll tell you, the, the local bus is probably done. Like, that's not going to exist that much longer. Um, the higher capacity routes, it's hard to beat. I mean, you cannot beat the geometries and efficiencies of, you know, the light rail line or uh, or even the heavy rail line or the, the bus rapid transit. Those things are will continue to exist. You try to get everyone into New York City and out of New York City in their own individual car. It's impossible, right? And so... I think there that there's absolutely a role for transit, absolutely a role for mass transit, absolutely a role for things outside of cars, uh, but absolutely it's going to be expanding to beyond just buses and uh, trains, right? I think shuttles will be a huge piece, and then there's all these questions that happen when all of a sudden you have these shuttles that are running everywhere. You know, one of the things we think about a lot in design uh, and uh, urban design and planning. And development is, you know, the transit-oriented development, which is you know, a huge trend in the country all this. Well, what happens if transit's really shifting through this? What happens if you're atomizing transit, right? So, like, the, the shuttles are really picking up from anywhere to anywhere. Or do they go towards, you know, certain corridors, right? So that we have, like, you know, not a stop, but an area of stops. Those are really big questions for how uh, how this, this change in transportation will affect uh, uh, the, the organization of the city. And, and one of the things that we say all the time, which I can't believe I've been this talking to you for this long and haven't mentioned it, but um, I think it's a really important thing for, for people uh, to hear is that AVs are not a transportation issue, or they're not only a transportation issue. They are an everything issue. They are going to affect this land use issues, like we just talked about. They're going to affect equity concerns, and we can talk a little bit more about that with uh, transit. Um, they're going to affect land values. They're going to affect municipal budgets. They're going to affect all sorts of – they're going to affect housing costs. Uh, and the important re- reason to, I think, uh, realize that is on the one hand, uh, you know, it's true. that I mean, the, you, you look – you think through these things and you see the ramifications all the way through these different parts of our society, of our, society, or, or our communities, of our cities – um, and the second part is that some of the changes that are going to be needed to make sure that we do a good job and like integrate these things well into our communities and continue to like communities continue to be effective for the people who live in them is that you're going to have to build political support to make those uh, the make the make the, the changes necessary um, that and the relationships and the, and the, the, um, the partnerships necessary to make these things really work well. And to, the only way to do that is really to get people thinking beyond this is only a transportation issue.
0: Yeah, it seems it always seems like a little bit of a chicken and egg problem trying to figure out kind of public policy and, and city planning in this area because on one hand you want to get out ahead and, and be proactive and, and figure out how you want your city to look, but on the other hand it's hard sometimes to make the rules ahead of time when the technology's not quite here and people don't know how it's going to work in practice, you know. And so you don't want to put rules and set rules in stone that turn out to be the wrong rules. And so when a technology is moving quickly and we're not sure how it's going to be adopted, how people are going to use it, sometimes um, it's, you know, a a better approach to move more slowly. Are, Are pilot programs really the... The best way to kind of do little experiments to try out new rules or new uh, designs or or ways of thinking about these things
1: yes absolutely and i I mean it's a it's a great question and it's a really big problem that that exists out there and the advice that we're giving is actually it was tremendously well framed by someone that we just listened to uh, recently out in dc but you have to think about what you what you what changes are going to come how volatile is the future And how much can you how predictable is it for things that are somewhat predictable that we can see like, oh, I really think it's going this direction. Well, then you can be really anticipatory and you can start to say, okay, how how will this be affecting all these other pieces? And let's anticipate those things and let's prepare for that Uh, for things that you don't know exactly the way they're going to play out. um, You have to be more nimble. Right. So it's 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 more about being resilient, setting up structures that can move quickly, that can figure things out or that are flexible, that are that are um, responsive. Right. So it's one thing to say, I want this regulation to be this specific thing because I see the future being that. Or you can create a re- regulation that says, I will use this input from our environment of, you know, what parking utilization is, for instance, to end up figuring out what kind of parking regulations we want to create or, or, or are part of the code. Right. So mm-hmm. so it's it's this balance between being anticipatory and being resilient and nimble. And I think those, those are those are really important things for our cities to be thinking about right now. Yeah. And firms as well and firms as well.
0: Right. So speaking of kind of the the longer term impact and longer term planning, um, some of the the impacts you've mentioned are on land value, land use, um, the question of sprawl and kind of where, you know, where we're going to live. How do you think autonomous vehicles will change where people live and will location in some ways matter less?
1: No, that's a great question. and something that uh, you know, urban designers love to think about and planners as well. So, um, so let me give you some examples of how it might change where we live. So um, let's say right now that you're willing to accept, I give this example all the time. I'm willing to accept, uh, uh, accept a 25-minute commute right, to work. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, and, and so therefore I find a house that's more or less you know, 25 minutes away that I can afford. You know, that's, that's my goal. Um, all of a sudden with uh, AVs, Um, that 25 minutes, uh, actually will get me further, especially, especially on arterials and on freeways, AVs are, should be much more efficient. So that, that will get me even further. And added to that, the idea that instead of spending 25 minutes with me, like, you know, looking at the road and trying to sip coffee, um, I can do whatever I want. I can be working, I can be watching a movie, I can do exercise, I can eat, I can do, I can sleep, I can do all kinds of things. So maybe instead of only 25 minutes, I'm actually willing to accept 35 minutes or 40 minutes of a commute mm-hmm. now that it's got this different value of time. Um, and so what that says is the the uh, the place that I would be willing to live might shift tremendously. If land is cheaper further out, right? Maybe I'll go further out. If what I really want more than anything in my life is this enormous yard, maybe I'll go further out. If what I really want is to live in the woods, maybe I'll go way out, right? And so... Um, the pressures on sprawl will be tremendous. I mean, there, there will be a tremendous increase in the in the amount that the, the city could expand. Uh, part of the problems with it, on the one hand, you know, fantastic, everyone gets to follow their bliss. Uh, on the other hand, you know, there's huge kind of uh, impacts on that kind of development, right? Which, you know, everything from uh, uh, energy use, depending on what kind of energy sources we have, right? Uh, the uh, huge impacts uh, for environmental issues, right? So, you know, we know that sprawl is, you know, tremendously detrimental to, uh, you know, water quality and habitat. Those things will be going, will, will be severely impacted. But also in terms of like, you know, social issues of, uh, of um, uh, equity, accessibility, uh, um, affordability, all these things kind of are going to play together. And so, you know, sprawl uh, uh, is a is a pattern that we've developed in this country. And, you know, a whole lot of people are living it right now. And we're starting to feel some of the impacts of those things from the environmental side, obviously, and from the social side, the biggest one that has really grabbed people's attention is the fiscal side, right? So sprawl just costs more, uh, maintaining all these roads out, uh, you know, per, per unit, the amount of road and infrastructure, you know, sewer lines, electrical lines you have to build just costs a whole lot. And you, you, you would be hard pressed to find a mayor in this country who does not say, oh, my goodness, the cost of the infrastructure and maintaining this infrastructure that we've already built is killing us. Um, so if there's all of a sudden this increased pressure on more sprawl, right, that is only exasperating that problem. Uh, and so how is it that we, you know, be it for, for any reason, for social reasons, for environmental reasons, for fiscal reasons, how do we make sure that we uh, have these, uh, this this that we incentivize the right kind of decisions so that we, we make sure we don't create problems?
0: Right. It's interesting because I sort of feel like in a world where you have to be at the office at a certain time, you know, you feel like you go to the office every day for a reason and you need to show up there at a certain time, that you don't really want to live two hours away just because during those two hours you can take a nap or watch a movie because that's still it means you got to leave at six in the morning, right? <laughs> so I, I hear you about people being willing to live further away, uh, marginally because, uh, you know, they, they don't have to sit behind the wheel, but you know, a lot of people say, well, uh, nobody's going to take commuter rail anymore because they can all just get in their car. And even if, it's an hour and a half in traffic at least they're not driving and i kind of feel like that piece of it gets a little bit overblown i mean
1: agreed you know agreed.
0: if you can take the train and it's 30 minutes are you really going to sit in your car for 90 minutes i mean it's the same decision we all make today yeah. right today yeah. you decide yeah. like hey should i take bart or should i drive and when you look at the difference in time you say gee i think i'll take the the public transit option because i really don't want to sit in traffic for an hour and a half yeah,
1: yeah um, a, same, Absolutely. It, same it, oh. Yeah. so so absolutely i think that you know on the one hand uh the the there is an absolute limit to how long i mean i want to be home with my kids i do not want to be in any kind of transit right or transportation or anything right it, it could be walking or biking i want to be home um on the other hand so you know I, I would never change my you know 20 minute commute to be a two-hour commute never Right. but but 20 to 30 minutes i might do because maybe i can do the last like you know and it, 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 I can get that last half hour of work done on the way home right. as opposed to like, you know, that, it, when I'm stuck driving or I can, you know, uh, do that one other thing that I, that I want to do, or maybe, you know, like that's my exercise routine. I'm really like, I'll get, I'll get the AV that comes with a, with a cycle in it, which I think mm-hmm. is totally ironic. But <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I, I picture this and like, you know, someone driving by with their AV next to a cyclist who's actually cycling. Oh, um, it's, it's a funny, it's a funny image for me. Um, but maybe I'll take that one and I'll be, that'll be my exercise program, right? My half hour home is like doing that where before I only wanted to have a 20 minute commute. I want to have but even if, even if we, we still absolutely accept the same amount of, of uh, travel time, and, I, and like I said, I think that the, the use of time, and there's been some studies that come out of Davis and, and George Tech that shows the use of time, the, having the ability to use our time for other things absolutely changes the way that we think about the transportation and the amount of time that we're willing to spend in it. Mm. Um, but even if we didn't do that, AVs will still get us further, right? So there will be pressures on sprawl. That, that, is like a, that will absolutely happen.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point that, that you're your 30 minutes, you, you might travel more miles in, in that 30 mm-hmm. minutes. I, I, I think that's a really important point. Maybe it's just because I get motion sick, but yeah. it, <laughs> I, I don't know, at least uh, according to Wikipedia, something like a third of the population gets yeah. motion sick. So uh, we're all going to be listening to podcasts. I don't think we're going to be able to be reading. <laughs>
1: but... Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Uh, so, you know, we've talked about some of the, the short term and some of the longer term Impacts that you think uh, AVs might have on cities and regions. Um, how do you think cities can start, uh, you know, bringing people together to talk about these issues and getting kind of the right constituencies um, in place? I I think about some of the, the private AV companies and others, and sometimes they're not sure how to approach cities, and I think there are cities who aren't quite sure um, how to start making these uh, decisions and how to get things going. Um, who are the people that you need to have in the room to start thinking about these? And are, are there examples uh, or clearinghouses or places where all the best ideas are being funneled, where people can kind of reach out and say, hey, I want to get started on this? What, what are the best approaches?
1: Uh, great question, and uh, uh, thank you for asking. So, f- uh, first of all, I think the most important thing that has to happen, you know, from the from the technology company OEM side, is that they have to decide that they want to engage in this conversation. And I hope that the con- the things that we've talked about have, have given enough context to to help people think that oh, this is we should be aware of this, and we should be uh, potentially even engaged and involved in it. Uh, and so that's the, the first piece. The next piece um, uh, uh, is. Um, to in, in with engaging these cities, uh, it is it is a a area of quick transition right now. So you know, I would say, come work with us. I mean, so what, one of the things that we've really been trying to do is organize um, uh, kind of how how to approach cities and how cities should be thinking about these things. Right now, we're working with a small city, Gresham, which is just outside of uh, Portland. Here, a suburban, suburban city. Um, uh, looking at every uh, different uh, uh, department in the city on how it is that these new technologies not just AVs but also e-commerce and the sharing economy are going to be affecting them uh, and so the 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 idea is get, get find people who are working on these issues and and and, uh, and use that to engage with cities um, I'll say you know the conference that we're doing uh, is, is is that is like one of the primary goals Um So from the city side, what's really important is this, we keep on saying this, of uh, kind of pulling back the curtain. It is not very hard when you get people's attention to talk about things that they know right now, you know, Amazon, uh, uh, Uber, Lyft, uh, you know, things that are reality right now. And just have them think through what the ramifications for those things are as they increase in number uh, and all of a sudden, you know, have this shift, you know, when AVs happen. Uh, and so it's really easy to get people from like, oh yeah, we're here today. To oh my goodness, oh yeah, that's going to happen as well. Oh yeah, it's not just like you know the car going out to like pick out milk for me. Uh, there's all these other pieces that are going to be that are going to be affected. Um, and I think that's probably one of the like best things that can happen. This, as I mentioned, this pulling back the curtain, because what it does is it has everyone within their jobs, whatever it is that they're doing right now uh, from in the city side. It gives them, you know, the question that we always ask them is. How does, you know, as we think through these things, how does it change the project that you're that's in front of you right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, how does it change the work that you're doing right now? Would you do this the same way? How does it change the project you think you're going to be doing in five, ten years? Right? And, and what about, how does it change the plans that you're making, like the, the larger range plans that you have for these things? How does it change the data you think is important? How do you think it changes who you need to be talking to, what partners you need to be thinking about, and partnerships both within the city and outside of the city? Uh, and i think right now we're at a point where just asking those questions to people who really know their jobs really well is a huge step forward uh, in, in starting to lay out you know the this as i mentioned before this an anticipatory and resilient kind of uh, approaches to to these changes so for people who are listening to this who are interested in engaging the cities i'd say one absolutely come to the conference we're bringing together you know the brightest minds in the country of people who are thinking about these issues, so both the information side and the application side, and two, come work with us, because um, that's exactly what we want to be doing. I mean, our, our goal is to create, uh, you know, help the transition into this future be as positive as possible for everyone, for, you know, the, the communities, cities, uh, the public sector, the private sector, everyone involved. Uh, and so and, and so, how, how we, we'd love to be working together to figure out how to do that.
0: What's the best way for people to reach out to you? I'll, I'll definitely put your, your websites and your contact info and the links to your, uh, your conference, the Urbanism Next conference, uh, on our show notes. How do you like to be approached? Is it email or Twitter? Or?
1: So, uh, well, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of everything. So email would be great. So nlarco uh, at edu. Uh, is a great way uh, to get in touch with us. Um, Twitter is at Nico Larco. And uh, for, for information on the work that we're doing, you can find uh, the website is urbanismnext.com. And from that, you can also reach a blog that we've got uh, where we've been collecting a lot of this information. We're right now in the process of translating that into a clearinghouse, uh, which kind of curates all that information. It's not just the you know, chronological, the way that a blog is. Um, but those are, those are all great ways uh, to, to reach out into the work that we're doing and, and, and get in touch with us. And we'd love to hear from you.
0: Terrific. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Nico. This was really fun.
1: I really appreciate it. Great, great conversation, and I look forward to more.
0: All right. Take care. Take care. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And thanks again to Nico for joining us. I'll put all the links to Nico's materials and contact information in our show notes, which you can find on medium.com by searching for the Smarter Cars publication. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.